0: This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Lomley. Hello and welcome to the Witnesses of History podcast. We're going to start this time with a private audience the French ambassador had with Elizabeth I on the 8th of December fifteen ninety seven. This is written by the Ambassador Andre Huro. On the eighth of December, I did not think to be given an audience for that day, and was resolved to make my complaint. But about one hour after noon there came a gentleman from the Queen who said to me that Her Majesty was much grieved that she had not given me audience sooner, and that she prayed me to come to her that very hour. He brought me in a coach to take me down to the river where one of the barges awaited me, and we went thence to the gate of the Queen's Palace. At our landing there came to seek me a gentleman who spoke very good Italian called Monsieur Watton, who told me that Her Majesty sent word that I should be very welcome and that she was awaiting me. He had four or five other gentlemen with him. As he led me along he told me that the whole court was well satisfied to see me and that they knew well how greatly I loved their nation and that in Italy I had done all that I could for them. I told them that I was very sorry that I had not done more and that what had been done was by the command of the king who wished me in all that concerned the Queen of England to busy myself as much as in his own affairs.' He led me across a chamber of moderate size wherein there were guards of the Queen and thence into the presence chamber, as they call it, in which all present, even though the Queen be absent, remain uncovered. He then conducted me to a place on one side where there was a cushion made ready for me. I waited there some time and the Lord Chamberlain, who was in the charge of the Queen's household, not as maître d'hôtel, but to arrange audiences and to escort those who demand them, and especially ambassadors, came to seek me where I was seated. He led me along a passage somewhat dark into a chamber they called the Privy Chamber, at the head of which was the Queen, seated in a low chair by herself, and withdrawn from all the lords and ladies that were present, they being in one place and she in another." After I had made her my reverence at the entry of the chamber, she rose and came five or six paces towards me, almost into the middle of the chamber. I kissed the fringe of her robe, and she embraced me with both hands. She looked at me kindly, and began to excuse herself that she had not sooner given me an audience, saying that the day before she had been very ill with a gathering on the right side of her face, which I should never have thought seeing her eyes and her face, but she did not remember ever to have been so ill before. She excused herself because I found her attired in her nightgown and began to rebuke those of her council who were present, saying, What will these gentlemen say, speaking of those who accompanied me, to see me so attired? I am much disturbed that they should see me in this state. Then I answered her that there was no need to make excuse on my account, for that I had come to to do her service and honour, and not to give her inconvenience. She replied that I gave her none, and that she saw me willingly. I told her that the King had commanded me to visit her and to kiss her hands on his behalf, and charged me to learn the news of her well-being and health, which, thanks be to God, I saw to be such as her servants and friends would desire, and which I prayed God might continue for long years, and in all prosperity and dignity." She stood up while I was speaking, but then she returned to her chair when she saw that I was only speaking of general matters. I drew nearer to her chair and began to deal with her in that wherewithal I had been charged, and because I was uncovered, from time to time she signed to me with her hand to be covered, which I did. Soon after she caused a stall to be brought, whereupon I sat and began to talk to her. She was strangely attired in a dress of silver cloth, white and crimson, or silver gauze as they call it. This dress had slashed sleeves lined with red taffeta, and was girt about with other little sleeves that hung down to the ground, which she was forever twisting and untwisting. She kept the front of her dress open, and one could see the whole of her bosom and passing low, and often she would open the front of this robe with her hands as if she was too hot. The collar of the robe was very high, and the lining of the inner part all adorned with little pendants of rubies and pearls, very many but quite small. She had also a chain of rubies and pearls about her neck. On her head she wore a garland of the same material, and beneath it a great reddish-coloured wig with a great number of spangles of gold and silver, and hanging down over her forehead some pearls, but not great worth on either side of her ears, hung two great curls of hair, almost down to her shoulders, and within the collar of her robe, spangled as the top of her head. Her bosom is somewhat wrinkled, as well as one can see, for the collar that she wears around her neck, but lower down her flesh is exceeding white and delicate, so far as one could see. As for her face, it is and appears to be very aged, It is long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal, compared with what they were formerly, so they say. And on the left side, less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. Her figure is fair and tall and graceful in whatever she does, so far as maybe she keeps her dignity, yet humbly and graciously withal. All the time she spoke she would often rise from her chair and appear to be very impatient with what I was saying. She would complain that the fire was hurting her eyes, though there was a great screen before it, and she six or seven feet away, yet she did give orders to have it extinguished, making them bring water to pour upon it. She told me that she was well pleased to stand up, and that she used to speak thus with the ambassadors who came to seek her, and used sometimes to tire them, of which they would on occasion complain. I begged her not to overtire herself in any way, and I rose when she did, and then she sat down again, and so did I. At my departure she rose and conducted me to that same place where she had come to receive me, and again began to say that she was grieved that all the gentlemen I had brought should see her in that condition, and she called to see them. They made their reverence before her, one after the other, and she embraced them all with great charm and smiling countenance. For the next two readings, I am going to take a different source. This is 125 years in words and pictures as described in the contemporary reports that appeared in the Daily Telegraph from 1855 to 1980. It was their 125th year anniversary publication. We've just had a reading about a meeting of an ambassador with Queen Elizabeth I. Now from the 16th of December 1861, the sadder report of the death of the Prince Consort, Albert. Gastric fever, doing its work with terrible rapidity, has carried off Prince Albert of Saxe-Cobod-Gotha, the husband of the Queen, and one of the most accomplished, refined, prudent and amiable princes of whom history takes note. A week since, this illness was hardly deemed more than a common cold with feverish symptoms. The illness, which until Friday evening gave no cause of anxiety to those who had the best reason to prize a life which was held by millions at inestimable value, seems to have been contracted by exposure Cold. The second of our telegraph reports comes from the 16th of December 1901 from our own correspondent in New York as Marconi spans the Atlantic. Signor Marconi has the sublime confidence of genius that the signals he received at St John's Newfoundland last Wednesday and Thursday were from the wireless telegraph station at the Lizard Cornwall. To what extent the present experiments have been successful is not yet known, but it is evident that Signor Marconi considers that he has surmounted all difficulties in regard to transoceanic wireless telegraphy, and that it is now a real live factor in the industrial and commercial life of the world. It was in 1899 that signals were first transmitted across the English Channel and Marconi has continually improved the receiving and transmitting apparatus he then used. The system was largely employed during naval manoeuvres in 1899 and definitely adopted by the Admiralty last year. We conclude with uh, Julius Caesar's own account of the invasion of Britain in 55 BC. The Romans were faced with very grave difficulties. The size of the ships made it impossible to run them aground except in fairly deep water, and the soldiers unfamiliar with the ground, with their hands full and weighed down by the heavy burden of their arms, had at the same time to jump down from the ships, get a footing in the waves, and fight the enemy, who, standing on dry land or advancing only a short way into the water, fought with all their limbs unencumbered and on perfectly familiar ground, boldly hurling javelins and gavel- galloping their horses, which were trained to this kind of work. These perils frightened our soldiers, who were quite unaccustomed to battles of this kind, with the result that they did not show the same alacrity and enthusiasm as they usually did in battles on dry land. Seeing this... I. Caesar ordered the warships, which were swifter and easier to handle than the transports and likely to impress the natives more by their unfamiliar appearance, to be removed a short distance from the others and then to be rowed hard and run ashore on the enemy's right flank, from which position slings, bows and artillery could be used by men on deck to drive them back. This manoeuvre was highly successful. Scared by the strange shape of the warships, the motion of the oars and the unfamiliar machines, the natives halted and then retreated a little. But as the Romans still hesitated, chiefly on account of the depth of water, the man who carried the eagle of the 10th legion, after praying to the gods that his action might bring good luck to the legion, cried in a loud voice, Jump down, comrades! Unless you want to surrender our eagle to the enemy, I at any rate mean to do my duty to my country and my general. With these words he leapt out of the ship and advanced towards the enemy with the eagle in his hands. At this the soldiers, exhorting each other not to submit to such a disgrace, jumped with one accord from the ship, and the men from the next ships, when they saw them, followed them and advanced against the enemy. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.